Welcome to the Wealthy Circle Podcast, where we take a deeper dive into this year's finalists and winners from our wealthmanagement.com industry awards. These interviews cover the challenges, innovations, and trends in the wealth management industry and the individuals working to help advisors better help their clients. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Wealthies Podcast. My name is David Armstrong. I'm the editor of WealthManagement.com, and this is the podcast where we speak to the people responsible for the initiatives recognized in our WealthManagement.com industry awards. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Jeff Getty, the Managing Director of Key's Family Wealth Consulting Team. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the initiative that you won the award for this year, KeyBank's Family Wealth Business Advisory Services, Jeff, before we get into the initiative itself that the judges recognized you for, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do there for Key's Family Wealth Consulting Team and where Key's Family Wealth Consulting Team sits within the larger Key organization? Sure. Uh, Family Wealth is the multifamily office division of Key's Private Bank, and the consulting team resides inside of Family Wealth as our client experience and uh, strategy group for those uh, family offices that we work for. Excellent. Uh, The judges this year, you won, congratulations, uh, the initiative for your business advisory services. Uh, specifically business advisory services. This is for uh, wealth management services for small, medium enterprise business owners, families who own private businesses. Tell us a little bit about the business advisory services and what you're trying to do there. Sure. So um, years ago, we identified as an organization that the future, uh, a large piece of the future of the wealth management business was going to come out of liquidity events from closely held businesses. If you look at the demographics inside the United States, there's approximately 390,000 closely held businesses that fit kind of that middle market lens. So that will be enterprise value about up to $100 million uh, in value on a particular business. And about 60, 65% of those are expected to transition or transact over the next 10 years or so because they are owned by baby boomers. So overall, the group was started, the strategy was developed around those types of clients who we believe were underserviced by traditional wealth management approach. And we created a team with the specific goal to uh, become advisors to those clients and assist them through the transition from business owner to wealth management client. Interesting. The, uh, you said there's 3,000 or so? Uh, no, actually, there's over 300,000 of those businesses nationwide wow. that fit wow. that lens. 300,000. Yep. Uh, uh, that's amazing. And what are some of the mistakes that these business owners make? I'm assuming that these are largely founders, entrepreneurs, middle market businesses, family owned. What are some of the mistakes they make when they're thinking about well, here's my take, and you tell me if I'm wrong. The entrepreneur founder usually is not thinking at all about transitioning or monetizing or selling at some point in the future or uh, succession to next generation. So I imagine one of the biggest mistakes they make is not thinking about this at all. But when they do start thinking about it, what are some of the mistakes that uh, these families or founders make when thinking about succession? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, You're right. A lot of them don't think about it. Uh, Historically, what we've seen, and I've been doing this work for about 25 years, is most transitions or transactions start 
kind of inadvertently. And what I mean by that is historically, at least 50% of the clients I worked with have popped up on the radar because they either have an unsolicited offer, right? Somebody comes along, knocks on their door and says, hey, we've got, uh, we're interested in buying your business, whether they're a strategic buyer or a private equity group uh, or whomever who is interested in, in that particular industry, or there is an unexpected uh, issue inside the ownership unit, meaning that the uh, entrepreneur has a health issue, uh, their spouse has a health issue, child, whatever, that causes them to want to spend less time at work, either a complete exit or a partial exit. So they are completely unprepared for either of those two scenarios. So that kind of backs into the issues that a lot of these you know, clients run into is that they have that offer, something happens, and they've done absolutely nothing to prepare for, for that transition or transaction. Yeah, I think one of the statistics that I learned from you all is that only about 20% of the privately held middle market companies looking to exit will be deemed market ready, quote unquote, market ready. Uh, and only fewer than that will transact at what they consider a desired value. Yeah, so that statistic's pretty uh, spot on in our experience, and we've got plenty of data points to back that up and prove it. Uh, that's industry-wide. Uh, since we've started this strategy, what we have accomplished for our clients that work with us earlier stage, so before the unsolicited offer comes in or some health issue pops up, is our clients are ready to go to market. They are prepared. They've got their ducks in a row, so to speak, and they have uh, uh, better outcomes. We're very outcome-oriented for clients. Uh, it's one of the, the mantras or things that we share with a lot of clients is our job is to help them avoid predictable mistakes and suboptimal outcomes. And I imagine one of those suboptimal outcomes is, as you say, or industry-wide, not realizing the full value of what they own. Value is always a big piece of this, but I, you know, but it's kind of important uh, that m most people believe that that's the the largest single driver of of deals. It is a big driver, and it's where a lot of conversations start with owners. But what amazes me and has amazed me throughout my career is the fact that oftentimes more than 50%, um, the deal a client actually takes in a transaction, a third-party sale, is not the highest dollar figure, not the highest offer. Uh, often there's something else there that they like, or there's something from the highest offer they didn't like. So it, value is important, and it is a big driver. And clients want to be in the, the, you know, to get the best possible offer. But what's interesting is that oftentimes is not what actually ends up being the successful transition or trans, or, or, sorry, transaction. Uh, what are some of the other things that might come into play? They yeah. so particularly with founders, right? So that first generation entrepreneur, they have a lot of emotion tied up with the business. Not all, right? Like I deal with some people, it's all about the dollar and that's fine. But a lot of the ones, there's something else there. There's a legacy issue. They want to make sure that their management team, for example, or their employees that have helped build this are taken care of. So they might not sell to certain types of buyers who are going to gut the, the employee base or the management team. 
Um, in other cases, we've had clients who are the big employer in a small region. So I had a deal years ago where the client was in a small Midwestern town and was the primary employer in this town mm-hmm. and ultimately turned down every private equity and strategic offer out there ended up doing an ESOP. <clears throat> which is a, a you know fully yep. stock option plan sure. to provide ownership to the employees because his primary goal was ensuring that the business continued so he could quote unquote retire and live in the town he grew up in and built this business and not have to run away somewhere else and hide because he had destroyed the town. Yeah, that's a interesting fact. Um, I'm wondering, you know, the for companies that do think about these things, you know, you have a list of factors that come into play, personal factors, business operation factors, there's legal regulatory frameworks around the whatever happens, whatever the company happens to be in. There's a lot to think about when you're thinking about the valuation of a privately held business. Walk us through some of these factors, uh, maybe the ones that are less known or less considered uh, that you bring to the table with these owners and, and find yourself discussing a lot. Yeah, I would say the biggest factor we typically bump into, we usually start off with presentation of, of financials or the financial uh, package presentation, because that drives a lot of the early stage uh, and ongoing conversation in a transaction. And the biggest mistake uh, people make, and it's a relatively easy one to, to remedy, is at the end of the day, a good business privately held, is run to show as least profitability as possible for tax planning purposes. And most owners on some level get that. They work with their accountant or tax advisor year in, year out to show a low a low profitability number. So they pay less in taxes. And oftentimes it's so they can pour money back in the business. That's all well and good when you're the owner operator because you're building wealth on the uh, value side, not on the annual income side, typically. So one of the first things we focus on with clients is explaining to them why you just don't want to give over financials to a potential buyer who knocks on your door is because they're not put in the best light possible. So we're not you know, changing them in the sense that they're not accurate or real, but the first thing we do is look to recast or restate those so we're putting them in a position that a buyer would want to see to offer optimum value, right? So we put those financials, remove the tax strategy piece to it, and restate those earnings or redo those financials to show if we had been pushing this like a publicly traded business, which is all about return of value to shareholders quarterly or annually, what it would look like. So that's probably the largest single factor that surprises clients in a, in a transaction uh, or they're really unprepared for is that they have to take their financials and stand them on their head. That is interesting. And because of the way that they have been doing their books prior, uh, it doesn't make as much sense to a buyer necessarily to see them in that light, correct? It's less about it doesn't make sense because I think the buyer sees that. But if you think about the tools that a buyer utilizes, Mm -hmm. so this is going to be painting with a very broad brush, but the tool a buyer is utilizing is their job is to try to acquire that company for the lowest amount possible, right? It's a negotiation, right? I'm going to try to, if I'm selling, I'm going to try to get as much as I can. And the buyer is going to try to pay me the least they can. So if the financials are presented to them, 
that show low profitability, that helps them dramatically to justify a lower offer. We would then typically get into a conversation to really hone this point is most owners understand the concept of multiples of EBITDA that drive sale price. That trap they fall into if you present financials that are your typical ones you would use year in year out for your tax reporting it's going to by definition almost always make that multiple vibda approach lower than higher interesting so we have a buyer at the door you've restated the earnings or not restated but uh, shown earnings in a different format for potential buyers I imagine a lot of these decisions are also based on not just one person's input. Many of these are family-owned. How do you navigate some of the family dynamics around selling a business like this? (laughs) That's actually the hardest part of the job. And I I tell people, if I could go back in time to my 18-year-old self, uh, I think I would have uh, got my undergraduate degree in um, you know family dynamics or something like that, uh, conflict resolution, because um, I had to learn it along the way, mm. and it's very difficult. So I've got a whole host of stories I've shared with clients over the years as they're asking me how to navigate this, what to do. And there's no magic pill here, right? Uh, every family circumstance is unique or different. Uh, I usually start the conversation with... There's an inherent thread to people about being where they want to be fair across their to their children. You know, I have three kids. I try to be fair to all three kids, give them the same thing. Within the context of a business is equal, fair and is fair, equal is an important concept to understand that if you have, for example, three children and one is actively engaged helping to build the business and the patriarch or matriarch who owns the majority of that business decides to sell it, is it fair or right to give all three kids an equal amount of that sale? Or do we want to over, you know, give something more to the, the child who is engaged in the business? Those sort of dynamics are super important. It gets even more complex when we're talking about a transition of ownership to next generation, because despite what people might believe, there can only be one CEO. Mm-hmm. What I typically see as the biggest mistake is owners not being intellectually honest about who their kids are and what roles they could and should play in a transition. And I tell them, look, there's ways to create value and ownership without control and management. And that's part of the thread the needle philosophy of, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Owner or either or, and say to them, oftentimes, hey, wave a magic wand for me and tell me what perfect looks like, either in a transition or a transaction, because oftentimes we're comparing them for clients and talking about both. What is it you must have, would like to have, and would be nice to have? And once we have that rough roadmap, we can kind of back in and start to navigate through some of those issues because those threads that clients share with us kind of dictate the strategic approach we're going to take, whether it's which exit option are we going to focus in on and ultimately action on most likely, or is, you know, just what flavor of that, right? What are the the landmines we have to navigate through and what are the givebacks we'd have to go to that client say, okay, I was able to, this particular strategy achieves all these goals and objectives you wanted that were your must-haves, but the nice to have, you only get two out of five. Does that work? So a lot of it's just ongoing dialogue and conversation, being very patient 
with owners as they become, uh, as they sometimes they become self-aware, more self-aware than they were before about how the business is intricately entwined in their personal affairs and how do you at the right time separate it and then of course bring it back in because it's probably their largest single asset. For sure. And I imagine this is the sort of thing that gets even more complicated when we're talking second generation to third generation, because then there's many more people involved. Do you find yourself uh, sitting in room, young adults, maybe even teenagers, trying to explain some of what's going on with the family business and why some decisions are being made and why other decisions aren't being made? We do. And clients oftentimes utilize us in exactly that regard because it's hard to stop being, you know, mom or dad or, or grandma or grandpa and become CEO again. Like that line gets very blurred. So oftentimes we are utilized for exactly that to explain to them in great detail because I don't we don't have the back, the family, you know, I'll call it baggage that they do. Right. Um, you know, the worst case scenario we run into is a big conference room where you have the patriarch or matriarch saying, this is the way it's going to go. And then storm out of the room. That's awful experience typically, right? It becomes pandemonium because all those agendas of the next generations, and I don't mean that in a bad way, right? They, everybody has their own way of viewing things start to come out. So typically we try to advise those clients with, Hey, tell me about your family. Tell me about your relationships. Tell me about who's involved, who's not involved. Again, that magic one, what would you want to accomplish? And then we can help guide them through our years of experience as to the best way to bring these issues up and what other advisors we might bring in. So we have recommended at times bringing in a, uh, a family psychologist to help if there's a deep enough issue, a deep enough rift. At the end of the day, particularly with transitions, it's not just about the money. It's about being able to get together for Thanksgiving without everybody mad at each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. What is that? Uh shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves and three generations kind of thing. I mean, these things can fall apart, correct? And statistically, they, you know, the majority will, I don't have it in front of me. There's been a lot of studies over the years, but I think the successful transition to third generation is a right around single digit. So eight or 9% success rate. Um, that's why so many, one of the reasons why so many businesses are ultimately sold because they just can't figure out how to achieve the goals and objectives that are, or that they should because no one actually took the time to sit down and march them through it and challenge them on the things they say and the things they say they want to do. We usually have to, not on every case, but in a lot of cases, we have to tell people, look, that's not likely to work long-term. In our experience, that's not a good option. And you should be thinking about it this way or that way. So it, it's not uncommon that we, we see out in the marketplace, so to speak, businesses that are unsuccessful in transitions because they just can't get that down on paper what they want to accomplish. So we have a valuation that aligns with the owner's values. Uh, We have the family dynamics sorted out. The trigger is pulled and now we have a, a monetization event. Tell us a little bit about how you handle that transition or how the families you work with handle that transition of going from owner to rich person, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time with clients when we're talking about pre-transaction planning, talking about this. Uh, There's a really interesting statistic that's bannered about in the industry, uh, in the M&A industry, not wealth management, that of when, when entrepreneurs are interviewed 12 months after a successful transaction, defined as they got paid something like close to what they expected to get, what is the owner's satisfaction level? And over 70% 
have a high level of dissatisfaction with their transaction. Hmm. I don't think it's a value monetary issue typically, although I'm sure in some cases it's like, hey, if I just waited another couple quarters, I would have gotten X number more dollars. That certainly could be an issue. But in our experience, it's usually they don't know what to do. So we spend a fair amount of time as we're talking about things in pre-transaction space or even during a transaction, you know, the typical stuff, here's the tax threads and strategies we're going to work through. And here's the valuation methodology approaches and a lot of other nuts and bolts type stuff that's super important in managing a transaction. One of the issues we talk about is owner readiness. And, and a lot of that is what are you going to do after the dust settles? So that, for example, sometimes will drive a partial sale instead of 100% sale or a desire to stay on even after a sale, which doesn't typically work, but some clients are very insistent they want to stay on and have some sort of contract. In most cases, though, we start talking about things they could do. So entrepreneurs that have that bug and are likely to not want to go off in retirement and sail around the world or sit on a beach or just hang out with kids or grandkids, um, they, they, they're going to want to do something meaningful. We usually talk about a transition into a part of our multifamily office strategy, or in some cases, help clients develop a single family office where they become kind of in their own right, their own PE group. So that's something that a lot of our very entrepreneurial and quite frankly, younger clients are very interested in is, hey, I have my monetization event. I don't want to just put all my money into the stock market or into stocks and bonds. I want to carve out some piece and have a real estate strategy that mm -hmm. I oversee directly or be part of direct participation deals. Or, hey, I sold my business, which was in telecommunications. There's a handful of startups that are out there that I'd like to invest in and be very actively engaged with as an activist board member or as an officer. There are ways to set up those types of structures that are highly beneficial from a tax perspective. Um, that is something that we talk a lot with clients about. So we get them excited about the next day so they can see where they're going to go because they're not likely to go back to that office ever again. Or if they do, it's for a very short period of time. We're going to help them design a direction, a flow, a new strategy, something to do. That's interesting. So they become uh, investors in their own right in a way. Tell me a little bit about the, the, the tax structures that we're talking about here. I suppose we should just do a, a brief uh, overview of that. What are some of the missteps that these companies or owners will often make and what do you help them? What, what do you prevent and, and how do you do it? So this is my favorite question. Um, I'm a tax attorney by background. I have a JD and a master's of science and taxation. So uh, a tax is something that I, I you are definitely the person enjoy to talk talking. to about this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a big value add, right? So we talk about tax strategy on what we call the four cornerstones of taxation leading up to and through a transaction. Um, they are kind of that federal tax impact and strategies. So what are we going to do to reduce the amount of imposition of federal tax leading up to a transaction during the transaction and after the transaction? So we're going to look at things like, how do we structure the business? Do we do certain elections or conversions, S to C, C to S, spinoffs of certain things? 
um, primarily based on how we think that deal is likely to uncover, right? So if we really believe this is going to be an asset sale, there's certain strategies we would bring into play in anticipation of that versus it's going to be a stock sale. So there's some very specific things we do and start to model work with clients about preferably two, three, four years before they're likely to pull the trigger. Hmm. The next piece would be what we call state tax planning. So the clients who live in high income tax states, there are strategies we can use that are wholly separate and apart from any federal tax issue that we are going to navigate through and, and propose to them that might provide uh, some level of tax relief at the state level. Then we also typically talk about the blending of that after a transaction. So the post-sale, there's certain strategies and techniques we utilize after the dust settles, uh, either because we didn't have time to do other things or the client was unwilling, or they still want to do more after talking to us for a year or two on their on their tax. And then we typically have some level of uh, you know, impact on passive versus active activities and things like the, the the net income tax, which is what's known as the Obamacare tax. There's some tax strategy where we do around that. Uh, that can be very important. So as you're spinning things off and changing the structural components of the company or putting things into trusts, things like that, you can create you can solve one issue and create another one in this passive versus active activity. So that can be fairly significant. And then the last piece is just general, what I call estate planning. We take all of these different cornerstones of taxation, and then we overlay them with the work we do pre, during, and post. So pre is, hey, let's model some of these structures. Let's start to put strategies into place in anticipation of a sale one, two, three, five years down the road. Then when the deal is actually moving forward, we start to get heavily engaged with uh, the deal team, some of those we are in charge of, others were just on the deal team. And we work with the other players as the deal unfolds, what are the pieces and parts and levers and triggers we want to pull in the negotiation that might get us an additional tax benefit? So allocations, right? If we're doing asset sales and there's allocations, certain assets are better to have higher dollars to than others. Again, across those four cornerstones. And then there's the post piece, right? So three, the last distinct stages after the dust settles, what's left on the menu in that year of transaction and then in subsequent years to handle um, the uh, tax liability and reduce the impact on an ongoing basis. So it's a highly rigorous process. I tell clients all the time that the good news is um, we don't do it in a vacuum, then we don't rely too much on them. We get a data dump sent to us, and then we start to come back with ideas. We'll come back with threads. So, Mr. And Mrs. Client, what you've told me based on these factors, you're looking to achieve something like this. You want this to happen. You want to divide up the sale proceeds into something like this. Does this sound like what you're talking about? So, we stay out of here. Let me get you to do this particular strategy, or let's talk about a NIMCRUD or a DING or any other acronym in the estate planning world and talk more about the features and benefits and how it aligns with what they want to accomplish, and then come back with a menu of choices and then the pros and cons of each. And I tell clients all the time, the nice part about working with us is we will always tell you, hey, here's the five options that we've uncovered and here's how they work in a very high level format. If they wanted details, we'll give them to them. And then I will tell them based on how long we've worked with you and how well I know you, if I were in your shoes, I would pick option three. Now you're free to disregard that, but based on what I know, that's what I would choose if I were in your shoes. So that's it in a nutshell. It's a lot and it's a lot of work. No, it sounds like it. And it also sounds like the uh, ideal outcome for a particular client 
really begins years before any trigger is pulled on a transaction. But do you have the luxury of that with many of your clients or do many of your clients come to you? Hey, now's the time to sell. Help us out. It's a great question. So we have corporate wide about 150 active conversations or engagements with business owners across our footprint in various stages. Mm-hmm. We transact between 20 and 30 of those businesses per year. So we're always replacing what we're losing. That's transacting. But we have typically 150 or so conversations going on. Um, About 50% of those transactions are based on uh, long-term relationships where we have been the lead advisor. So that would be one to seven years we've been working with them typically. The longest one I have right now is nine. The average is about three years. So if we look at our transaction space, half are based off of people we've been talking to for at least a year, an average of three years. So you know them well and you know their businesses and you know. And we're doing everything I just went through with you, right? We're navigating through, uh, you know, a lot of education on the M&A process, strategic option analysis, value optimization, uh, pre-due diligence or M&A prep, pre-sale tax planning, right? All those types of things. And then 50% are the late stage, where, like I said, it's the, um, hey, I got an unsolicited offer or I decided, you know, for whatever personal reason, I'm, I have to go to market right now. So we do have the luxury. Um, this is a commitment from uh, Key to build this. We, I told them that straight up when they hired me, this is what it was going to take. Uh, and it's been fantastic. We've really built something that's sustainable and adds great value. And we do enough Early, we did enough early stage with the immediate transactions to, you know, get that business line off the ground. And now the work we've done from, you know, years ago and all these other has just taken this to a whole new level. So those become the the, the typically larger deals, better deals that, that we work on an annual basis. After the transaction is over, uh, you have all the ducks in a row, optimal outcome for the client. Do many of these clients stick around as wealth management clients? Almost 100%. Um, that's been probably the best part of the success story. When when I tell clients, like, if you were to hire our group as a consulting team on an hourly basis or a project basis, you'd be paying a, a ton of money. And we know basically what a lot of these engagements would cost because I've been in this business a long time. I've in prior lives have hired people like this to do this type of work. And the value exchange we tell clients is you're going to get our years of experience and expertise, all of our platform work, all the things we've done. And we typically, if we do charge a fee, and in some cases we do, uh, I offer clients, look, you know, what we really want is we want to help man, we want to manage your liquidity. We want to man help you change over into this uh, other type of client with this under our multifamily office structure. And if you do that, we'll do this work uh, either as an offset for the consulting fees, or if they've moved money with us ahead of time, we'll just do it for the for the asset management fee. Um, I don't have any problem with clients saying no. On very rare occasions, we've had conversations going into where the client says, look, my brother-in-law is in the business and I've always promised him that he would get you know, some piece of this. That's fine. We know that upfront. So those are the ones we would consider not 100% successful, but they are really because we knew that walking in. Um, so yeah, it is what we were set up to do. And that is ultimately our goal was assets under management. Interesting. I have to ask you this question too, given our 
general economic climate right now. The market valuations are pretty frothy, private equity very active. What's your read on the business activity, the the acquisition industry, the acquisition business, the acquisition space? Uh, is Are you finding your clients or clients to be encountering many more buyers these days or where are we at just in terms of a general business climate around? Yeah, that's a great question. And so let me start off with the, you know, we've had in the past 10 years or so, a very expansive market, right? We've had the Fed rates been cheap so or low, so money's inexpensive. There's a ton of it out there, whether it's from PE, strategic, single family office expansions. And the demographics, which typically would cut a, a both directions have cut in the direction generally of enough inventory to keep a lot of money in play and moving, but not so much the depresses valuation. So when we started this conversation about these hundreds of thousands of, of businesses out there, they didn't all go to market at once because if they did, that would drop value pretty quickly across the board. So looking into kind of the, the the crystal ball, you know, we're going to eventually hit some level of headwinds. You'll be surprised, I think, or most listeners will be surprised at some of the things I see as real headwinds versus kind of false flags or, or red herrings. Eventually, we will hit some level of inventory glut, right? We're going into a market that's, in my opinion, starting to cool off. It's harder to get mediocre deals done. Bad deals don't get done at all. Good deals still get done and get done well. But we're starting to see some pushback from buyers not willing to pay as high a numbers on forward-looking projections, right? So businesses that buy other businesses, they don't want to just replace, get your cash flow as the owner, they want to have some uh, increase in, in, in revenue off of the deal. You know, whether it's, hey, I'm taking on a new market in the same industry, which would be a strategic or a PE group, which is saying, hey, we think we can squeeze more out of this uh, business and get higher profit margins, increase pricing, whatever it is. There's some strategy that's driving a higher revenue stream. The projections that we help clients develop before they go to market to help profile what another buyer could do um, even ones where they're completely defensible and reasonable, we're starting to see some level of push. They're just not willing to do that. Now, part of that's COVID-driven for sure. Um, and I can talk in great deal about impact of COVID, but here's the thing. Even in industries that have been winners in COVID, right, that have done exceptionally well, that push is coming at them too. Because the question is, how much of this is going to continue, right? Is, it, is, this, the, is this the new normal? Is this, gonna, is this type of industry continue to grow because we're going to have this for a while? Or this is going to end and we can do every iteration from there to eternity about that. But the point is, that is becoming a little tougher. So, you know, this inventory glut tied in with, you know, some more firms going to market with projection looking financials that people question to some extent. Obviously, if we hit an issue in the general economic environment where credit either becomes more difficult to get or because a lot of deals are leveraged deals, they're based off of debt financing and whole or part, cost of funds goes up, dollars available are less so, that would be a big headwind. What's not really an impact, and I get asked this a lot, so I'll just answer it, <laughs> is tax. Tax has almost, in my experience, no impact on deals in the sense of people don't 
not go to market because tax policy has changed, taxes are higher. What it does do is it makes deals more difficult to accomplish because clients will have a number we helped them uncover of, hey, in order to replace the current cash flow of my business, I need to get a net sum of X dollars. If taxes go up by 5, 10, 15%, that whittles away at that lump sum, they get less. So we either have to do get higher prices, which in the environment wonder is, you know, questionable, but this would continue, this trend would continue of higher and higher pricing, or we have to get better in our tax strategy. So from our perspective, because we do so much tax, strategic tax work with our clients, that value prop will become increasingly important in the future as, as we expect taxes to go up. But in and of itself, the trending with respect to tax is probably going to have a very short blip and then it'll go back. The bigger issue is the overall economic environment, how many businesses are be at market, when to think people hit capacity on their strategic platforms, and then the cost and availability of money generally. That's interesting. So you're almost a, you've got some leading economic indicators going on there. Uh, you know, the impression is that there's so much money sloshing around that valuations are at an all-time high. I think we see that in the equity markets. Uh, you're saying that there's already some headwinds in the private business market. Yeah, we see it some. Not, not, it's not widespread, and I'm not trying to be alarmist by any stretch. Yeah. But we tend to look at trend lines uh, in the modeling we use, and we see some of our buyers using, because we all use the same philosophy. And they're just making certain adjustments. Generally, when clients ask me about trending and, and valuation, as I tell them in an expansive market, the leverage is on the seller side, and it becomes known as what's known as a, quote, seller's market. And we've been there for a long time. Yeah. What typically happens at the end of the cycle, the that those positions get in parity, right? Where it's not really a seller's market, it's not really a buyer's market, we kind of see even negotiation around pricing. Like there's not a lot of push from one side or the other because no one really has clear leverage. And then at some point, usually for a relatively short period of time, it becomes a buyer's market. Yeah. We are starting to see the indicators to see that parity level. Um, some people I talk to, and I talk to a lot of people in this industry, they say, we've been there for a while. Others say, we're not quite there. Look, I'm not an economist. I don't have a crystal ball. Yeah. I'm seeing some indicators that even though the market's very healthy and we see a ton of transactions going on, which is great, we are also seeing some level of parity in pricing, which is, you know, is it an indicator that bad is coming? No, not necessarily. It's just an indicator that, hey, uh, expecting and this is what I tell a lot of clients that sitting around for another couple of quarters is going to yield you a, you know, five or 10% increase on purchase price. That's getting a little tougher to justify. Interesting. Well, listen, Jeff, this has been great. Uh, we have kept you past your, your allotted time here. Thank you very much for that. Uh, it's been a fantastic conversation and congratulations on the continued success, uh, both for you and, and the firm there. Well, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it immensely. Um, happy to continue a conversation with any of the listeners at any time. A lot of passion around this. My whole team does. We really, so I'm in a very unique experience where I really enjoy what I do. I love learning how businesses work, how people make money, and then helping them do what I call a successful descent. Most business owners are really good building a business and getting to the top, the pinnacle of the mountain or their career or their business it's a different skill set to come down the mountain successfully, that successful descent. So that's our job is to help them successfully navigate that descent. And it's, a, it's very interesting. And in a lot of cases, a lot of fun working with these entrepreneurs. They're interesting people. 
If someone's listening to this and they wanted to track you down, where can they find you? How's the best way to get in touch with you? So if they live inside of a key market or have a key relationship, talk to your relationship manager. If you don't, I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. Send me a message. I'm happy to uh, connect with them and and just chat. Uh, I do a lot of one-off conversations, just starting it and see if there's a good synergy. If there is, we can find a way to work together. Or if there's not, there's not. You know, We'll, we'll part ways amicably. So uh, easiest way to get me is, like I said, if you have a key office, talk to your relationship manager. If you don't, uh, just find me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. That's great. Uh, Jeff Getty, Managing Director, Keys Family Wealth Consulting Team. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you to the listeners. This has been the Wealthiest Podcast. I'm David Armstrong. This content has been made for information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions represent the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of wealthmanagement.com.